Please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 119, and the sixth portion, which is verses 41 through 48. With communion approaching, we're looking at our Psalm of the Month uh, a week early, so that we may have it for the month of March to sing through. Um, if you're new to the congregation, each month we take sequentially a psalm in God's Word, as the psalms are the inspired praise book of the Christian church. The apostle says that we are to sing with the understanding as well as the spirit. And so to hear it preached will help us in order to sing with the understanding. We can't go into great depths. One verse would fill us with hours of meditations, but we take a bit of a bird's eye view in this series. So that to give us some understanding, let us hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 119 verse 41. These are the words of God. Let thy mercies come also unto me, O Lord, even thy salvation, according to thy word. So shall I have wherewith to answer him that reproacheth me, for I trust in thy word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped in thy judgments. So shall I keep thy thy law continually forever and ever, and I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. And I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments, which I have loved, and I will meditate in thy statutes. Amen. May God bless his word to us this afternoon. God says, where the spirit of the Lord is, and I think you know how that ends, There is liberty. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. 2 Corinthians 3.17 Now, as Americans, I think we have an interesting relationship with the word liberty. I think we can all expect that when an American speaks of liberty, we kind of have a twisted view of that word. We start to imagine that our tax rate is too high and we're going to throw a bunch of tea in a harbor someplace. And that is our view of liberty. Uh, As our series on Christian liberty, which we will return to sometime in March, Lord willing, uh, has taught us, that is not what God has in view when it comes to liberty. In the Bible, liberty speaks to things such as these. Liberty from the wrath of God. Liberty from the fear of men. Liberty from the shame and guilt of our sin. Liberty from sin's dominion over us so on and so forth, so that when we say where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, we start to understand what sort of liberty it is that the Lord has given to us, His people. Then, if that is the case, that where the Spirit of Christ is, there is liberty, there is, therefore, and I don't know if you've ever thought about that, there is liberty then found in the Word of God. There is liberty found in the word of God, which is something that the world does not understand, does it? That in this book is true liberty. In the word of God, the word of truth is true liberty. Why? Well, if we take that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. This book is inspired by the Holy Spirit, isn't it? The spirit of the Lord, 2 Timothy 3.16 children, 2 Peter 1.21. And the Apostle James calls the Word of God the perfect what? Law of liberty. James 1.25 It is a rule of liberty, this book is. 
It's a rule of liberty, yet how few think of it that way. You yourself may be here. Maybe you don't have much Christian experience. Maybe you're not a Christian at all. And you think that the word of God is quite restrictive. That it sort of inhibits your pleasures. That it sort of tells you what you can't and cannot do. And, and yes, it does that. Absolutely so. However, that is true liberty, the Bible says. Because sin is bondage. And the things that our heart sinful and polluted that it is, a heart is called deceitful in the word of God, right, children? Right? It deceives us into thinking that what uh, it believes is liberty is true liberty, but really what it is is bondage. This is the beginning of the Bible, it teaches us that when Satan taught, it was, taught us was liberty became our bondage and our chains. So have you seen, have you seen the word of God in Christ as a rule of liberty that frees you from sin, frees you from the wrath of God if you by faith believe the gospel. Friends, from the time of the tempter tempting us to fall into sin in the garden, the rule of God is being seen as chaining us and constraining us, whereas God calls his precepts true liberty. Again, Part of our problem as libertarian Americans often obsessed with individual freedoms is to have the twisted idea of freedom, which is let me do whatever it is I want to do, and that is freedom. That's actually the path to hell, friends, and eternal misery. You've already chained yourself when you think that that is the definition of liberty. You've chained yourself to that. That's a species of bondage. True liberty, as our confession summarizes the Bible is our freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemnation of God, the dominion of sin and Satan over us. True freedom is also this, our free access to God in Christ as our Father. And freely, right, this is freedom, freely yielding our obedience unto Him as obedient children and servants. That is true liberty and the freedom Christ has given us in the gospel. And our psalm portion shows us that this kind of liberty is what the Christian desires or ought to desire. This psalm shows us that our praises, right? This is a psalm by which to praise God ought to be filled with gratitude for biblical liberty that the Lord has given us in the word of God and in the law of God, that perfect law of liberty. Is it not fitting? Because the Holy Spirit spake through the mouth of David here. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, and we're to praise Him for that liberty. And so from our text, verse 45, I will use that verse to coalesce this theme. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. Now, Hebrew is a very illustrative language, and the word here for liberty really speaks of something quite picturesque, like a broad place. That's what liberty is sort of shown as in the Hebrew mind. It's this broad place. It's as though God has taken you from your fetters and your chains, right? The chain of sin and put you in a very large field, broken your chains in Christ and says, now you can walk. Now you can run. Now you can be free to serve me. That's a vivid picture of freedom. Whatever has constrained, in other words, your walk with God has been taken from you. Uh, that's the most freeing thing, right? When we think about in the, the garden, 
before sin entered the world, Adam was free to walk with God. That was freedom. And that is what Christ is freeing us to do. And that is what heaven will be. It will be this broad place of liberty where we can once again walk with God without sin constraining us. That is liberty, friends. And that is what the Christian longs for and yearns for and praises God that they have in a psalm like this. The believer is delighted to serve the Lord. The believer is delighted that just as God said to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may serve me, right? You know, one of the worst things about the Ten Commandments movie, of course, is they've turned the Exodus from a story about salvation into a story about libertarian freedom somehow, right? So they summarize it as a story about freedom, but this is the freedom God has given us. Freedom from sin. Freedom from condemnation. Freedom from uh, uh, sin and Satan, which Pharaoh is likened to. Let them go, he says, to sin and Satan so that they may serve me with freedom. And then what did he do when he saved you? He put his spirit in your heart when you were born again. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He has given you the freedom to serve him. I think this will make an excellent psalm to pair with our future sermons on Christian liberty as we continue that series next month, God willing. And so with that, our theme is the liberating word. The liberating word as we look at the word of God as one that liberates us. And we'll consider that under three heads. First is liberated from disgrace, second is liberated from sin, and third is liberated from fear. So first, liberated from disgrace, and what a great joy it is to be liberated from disgrace, friends in Christ. We'll spend most of our time here in this head because it is foundational. Verse 41 says, Let thy mercies come also unto me, O Lord, even thy salvation according to thy word. Now the psalmist reminds you, that salvation comes from God's mercies. Let thy mercies come unto me. And that's vital to remember. How quickly do you forget it? How quickly do I forget it? That salvation is in accordance with the mercies of God. We are debtors to mercy. We must especially remember that. Sometimes I think Psalm 119 gets a bad rap as, as just purely about law. It's really about the word of God. The law has prominence here. But sometimes people think that Psalm 119 is proclaiming something like salvation by following the law. Not at all. How can you sing it when it says here, let thy mercies come unto me? It is the grace of God that the Old Testament saints were looking for. The mercies of God here and not the keeping of the law to be saved. Some people even teach that kind of thing. I don't know if you've ever heard it. That the Old Testament saints were saved by keeping the law of God, but the New Testament church is saved purely by the grace of God. That is not true at all. It is all of grace. In fact, the apostle says, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness came by the law, then what? Christ is dead in vain. If you could keep the law, why would God send his son to die? It is the mercies of God that we need. Grace and grace alone will save us. The Old Testament saints knew that. In fact, the tax collector, right? The the problem is that 
At some point, much of the Jewish nation had turned away from the grace of God and had created their own law and their own rule keeping. But by the time of the New Testament, still there were those like the tax collector, the publican, who like in this psalm merely said what? God have mercy on me, the sinner. Let thy mercies come. Psalm 130 that we often sing. If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, what is the next part? Who shall stand? No one can stand if God did not give them mercy. We need mercy. We must rely on the mercies of God alone for salvation. Here's a prayer for you then, isn't there? Let thy mercies also come unto me. Let thy mercies also come unto me. When Jesus spoke of the tax collector who said, God have mercy on me, right? That's what he was praying. Let thy mercies come unto me. Did they come? Yes. Jesus said, this man went home justified. You pray, let thy mercies come. They will come. There is also mercy plenty in Christ. Mercy for every need, for every forgiveness, for every shame that we feel before a holy God. Let thy mercies come. He is gracious to give mercy when we ask. Lord, have mercy on me. Has a single example been shown to you in the word of God, friend, where a person asks for mercy and God said, no, not for you. Find that for me in the scripture. Boys and girls, you may not know what we mean by mercy, but when we say we need mercy, we are saying we need compassion. We need compassion. We, even though we deserve wrath and retribution and justice, we're saying, give me compassion instead. Give me mercy, Lord. And the Hebrew word for mercy in this place is chesed which means loving kindness. That's what the word translated here in the authorized version is at root. It's a word that means loving kindness. And the loving kindness of the Lord is magnified. And don't ever forget it when you realize you don't deserve his loving kindness. That you don't deserve his love. You don't deserve his kindness. You don't know, deserve his steadfast, undying, unending commitment to you, Christian. You don't deserve it. And that will actually help you ask for mercy all the more, won't it? Because sometimes you have this strange thought, I do too, that I cannot ask for God for mercy unless I have in some small way merited it. But then it wouldn't be mercy. But it would be debt on the side of God. And so you need to go ask for mercy all the time because you need it. And it's actually quite interesting, though salvation is at the forefront. This is a very interesting text because mercies here, reflected in the authorized version, is at the root, plural, in the underlying Hebrew text. The, the, the word is loving kindnesses. Not just loving kindness, loving kindnesses, which reminds you of this. The Lord has infinite mercies for every situation, not just one loving kindness, Loving kindnesses. 
And the heart of the believer believes this by faith and pleads it with the Lord. You don't just have a little bit of mercy for me. You have undying, infinite, unquenchable mercies for me, O Lord, because thou hast promised it. What does the scripture say, even when it comes to our sin? For where sin has abounded, in effect, his mercies have all the more abounded. And isn't this a beautiful prayer? Let thy mercies come. Let thy mercies come, O Lord. Have you ever prayed in that way? When you have need of mercy, let thy mercies come. I am a needy beggar. Are you not? Am I not? Let us never be too proud to beg for mercy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. When burdened by sin or a difficulty or a trial, whatever it is, do you not have warrant according to the psalm of praise to say, let thy mercies come, O Lord. Let us ask as a child to a father, Father, thy loving kindnesses, let them come to me. Full well recognizing we don't deserve it, but that is why it is mercy. Let us say with great astonishment and behold our Father and say, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in what? Mercy. That word is loving kindness. He delights in mercy. So he's not like, well, I guess I'll give it to you. I really don't want to. He says he delights. In loving kindnesses, he delights. Have you ever known a good uh, a parent? I'm not talking about one who's overindulgent, but a good, kind, just parent who delights to give their child things. That is what God is like. He delights to dispense mercies to us. So we say, don't you have warrant then to say, let them come. Let them come. Give according to thy nature, O Lord, because thou delights to give. More than I delight to receive. And of course, the greatest need we have is salvation. Even thy salvation, the psalmist says. You know, when we are saved, right, we have to remember. uh, In a Reformed congregation like this, maybe you think this is old news, but it's not. Our salvation is merely according to the mercy of God. And we must never forget that. It's his loving, more than just mercy judicially, it's mercy expressed as loving kindness, right? How does the Lord say he drew you to salvation? I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. That is a word of salvation. You were drawn to the Lord for salvation by his loving kindness, by his mercy. His mercy draws us to himself And his mercy causes us to draw to him. I think we ought to just bask in that truth, ought we not, if we are in Christ. That it was his loving kindness that drew us to him and saved us from our sin. And we ought to adore and love him and cherish him for it. Wouldn't it be a terrible thing to leave this place and not be warmed by that thought? If you are a believer. Well, the psalmist says, let thy mercies come according to thy word. Now, I thought about how to phrase this, and I probably could do better. Now, that word for word is not the usual word for word. 
It is a different word than is typically used in the Bible. The word there actually means promise. Promise. The word is a word of promise after all. So the psalmist is saying, let thy mercies, these loving kindnesses, come according to thy promise. Now this is something that is very freeing and is not appreciated about the word of God. It is very liberating to have a sure word of promise of promise in the scripture, an oath, a covenant from God. God has given promises in the Bible that he binds himself to, right? This is not a a book of pleasantries, a book of good sentiments, and a a book of just wise sayings or something like that. This book has promises from the Almighty to his people. And how liberating is it to know that thy salvation is in accordance with promises. Promises from God. Let thy salvation come according to thy promise. Isn't this something that frees the soul when the soul has faith in the promises of God? You know, the Roman Catholic is told by their popes and magisterium that they cannot really know if they have salvation. That's not great PR for them in this day. They're a bit quiet about it. But that's what their dogma teaches. Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, the great foe of the reformers, said the great Protestant heresy is one could attain to an assurance of a gracious estate with God. That is your heresy, friends, if you're a Protestant. Your heresy is that you can know that you are saved. Their system is bondage. The Bible system is liberty. Because God says, unlike the papists, that you can make your call an election. What's the word? Sure. Sure. Second Peter 1.10. But the wicked Antichrist says, you cannot. This is what he's saying. You cannot trust the promises of God. Because the word has promises. And then he shows himself to be that man of sin when he says, you cannot trust what God has to say. Is there a more wicked persona on the earth today? No. What has Christ said? Here is his promise, the true Christ. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Can you know that you are set free? Yes. What did he say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou might, thou shalt be saved. The Son has set you free if you have believed on him. And what Bellarmine and the magisterium would do is they would call Jesus and his apostles liars, heretics. That's blasphemy. Well, because his mercies come to us by way of promise, faith is assured they will be given. That's what the psalmist is saying. Faith believes what? All the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ. That's what faith believes. And what faith does then is it wants to sing the praises of God out of our psalm because all the promises of God are yea and amen. They are true in Christ. So that's salvation. But there are other mercies that are offered in the word of God to his people. And we need to know them all. The psalmist says, let them all come. Let them all come to me. There are promised mercies for our covenant children. There are promised mercies for provision, our daily bread in the Bible. There are promised 
uh, mercies for the presence of the Lord when we are in distress. The mercies of God, if you would open the promises, seem utterly unending, friends. You need to know them all. And you need to pray them all. And you can't just know them all. The Bible is showing you, you must pray them all. Don't just know the promises. You know you have faith in the promises when you pray for them. Because you will ask for them. Recently in Luke 11, you saw that the petitions of the Lord's Prayer are all built on promises God has given. So we are to pray, Jesus said, for what God has promised. And that's what the psalm teaches as well. Well, the psalmist takes all of this into an argument with the Lord in verse 42. So shall I have wherewith to answer him that reproacheth or taunts me, for I trust in thy word. What's his argument? He says, in effect, Lord, give me thy mercies so I can answer those who mock me. Give me thy mercies so I can have an answer for those who reproach me. They write, they mock your faith. And what is that really? He's saying, God, that in effect is mockery towards God because I believe what your word has to say. And give me what your word has to say so that I can answer those who mock me because I believe in thee. You can think of Jesus in this as well. You remember how the enemies of Christ mocked him on the cross. What was their mockery? Think of the psalmist. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, seeing he delighted in him. That's Psalm 22, verse 8. So our Lord Jesus understands the sentiment of the psalm. He's the one who sung it more fully, uh, being mocked as no other man has ever been mocked for his faith or ever will be. So we are called in effect, to pray by arguing, send thy mercies to us. For why should we who trust in thee, O Lord, be reproached because we believe in thee? Isn't that a powerful prayer? Say, why should I suffer reproach for my faith in the sure word of God? I trust in the word, but they don't. Arise, show thyself Jehovah, and defend thy name's sake. Then, O God, I will have an answer to those that mock me. Then I can say, see, God is God and his word is true. Well, even so, your soul ought to be settled because at the end of the day, no reproach can stick to the believer, can it? No reproach can ultimately stick to you, believer, if you are reproached for righteousness sake. I want to give you two promises we talk about according to thy word. So here are two promises to give you from God's word. First, Romans 8, 33 to 35. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. He promises there's no condemnation for you. There's no reproach, even for your own sin, if you are in Christ, ultimately. You will be vindicated because Christ is vindicated. And second is a promise that all our shame is gone. Romans 10, 11, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Children, if you believe in him, you will never be ashamed for your faith in him. Never. Whoever believes on him will not be ashamed. Could you imagine the judgment day? There you are before the Lord Jesus Christ. 
right? Your trust has been in him. Maybe it's been tenuous throughout your pilgrimage. Maybe you've been mocked, you've been ridiculed, you've been slandered, you've been hated, you've been stoned perhaps. And you come before him and now the tables are turned, aren't they? And the mockers and the revilers are gasping in horror before the Lord Jesus Christ. And there you are. And he says, I have vindicated your faith. And the mockers and the revilers will gnash their teeth forever. You will not be ashamed for your faith in the Lord, even if you are shamed today. But even so, pray, Lord. Pray that reproach wouldn't come upon me. He has liberated you from shame and reproach. What a blessed Redeemer. I want you to think on your own personal sin as well and think about the reproach that you often feel in your own soul for it. You know, if you've repented of it, I know that you have likely, you have likely wept many tears over it. But the Lord staggeringly says he'll remove that reproach from you. Isn't that a thing? You know, he says he'll wipe away every tear with his own hand. Even that sin that often causes you to grieve and mourn, he says, there is no shame ultimately for you because Jesus Christ was shamed on the cross before God and man. And if he has owned your shame, there is no shame. You think in eternity you will be shamed by your sin. No, you will praise God that that shame was taken away by the Redeemer. He says to you today, Jesus does, I was mocked. On your behalf, I was shamed and even virtually dragged out there naked before men. For your sake, there is no shame for you. Wipe away those tears. I will. You are not to allow a man or a devil shame you for repentant sin. You may have been a great sinner. You are to do is you are to go and fall before the Lord. If there are tears over your sin that you've repented of, make them tears of profound and deep joy as that woman who fell at the feet of the Redeemer, who, who wasn't so much just sorrowing what awful things she had as, done as much as she had rejoiced to know that this blessed one before her had taken all of her shame away. And when men in that house wanted to shame her, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who defended her. She didn't have to say a word. There was the Lord saying, this one has loved me much because I have forgiven her much. All our shame is taken. We're liberated by the word of promise with that truth. And you must believe it this day. Even if the devil himself came before you and wanted to shame you and said, what a great sinner you are. You remember the sentiment of men like Luther who says, I admit it, I'm a great sinner. But Christ Jesus came into the world for great sinners. And where I am, where he is, I will be also. Why can he say that with assurance? Why can you say that with assurance? Because that is what the word of God promises. And that's what the psalmist says, for I trust in thy promises. That is, again, the most freeing thing in your soul, friend, to trust in God's promises. It will cause you to navigate this world by faith and not by sight. It's promises, right? Sometimes, admit it, seem far-fetched but all of them are true. Every single one is true. And that's what the psalmist says. I trust in thy promises. 
When the devil whispers again, you are useless to Christ. You are a gross sinner, too gross to repent, too gross for Christ to receive you. He will have nothing to do with you. You say, the Lord rebuke thee, Satan. The Lord has promised that Christ came to receive me. Even the worst, even me. Resist him with the word and the adversary will flee. Well, verse 43 is conjoined to this. And again, sad to say, we must fly by this psalm. Verse 43 is conjoined and says, Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped in thy judgments. What is the word again called? It is the word of truth. You can depend on its promises. You can believe its promises. Don't take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. You know, Jesus took these words to God in prayer, didn't he? In the high priestly prayer, thy word is what? Truth. Thy word is truth. And Jesus also said this, the truth shall set you free. Thy word is truth. The truth shall set you free. This is a word that sets our soul free. So the psalmist says, take it not out of my mouth. Let me have it to meditate on. Let me have it to speak. Even as we think on this psalm, let me have it to praise thee. Little is more tragic, and it has happened far too often for those who knew the word of God to go silent, to no longer take it up in their mouth, to apostatize. You and I need divine grace to keep it in our mouths. And really, if it's found in our mouth as it ought to be, what do we know about where it is sourced, where it is rooted? In the heart. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh, as the Lord said. So this is really goes deeper than you might have at first glance. He's really saying, keep thy word central to my heart. Keep the promises and the precepts there. I think we who are ministers, you know, my brother and I here who are ministers, ought to especially plead this promise, ought we not? What a thing it is. You know, you've seen the decline of some ministers over their ministry. They began with the Bible, and they end with comedy. And you don't ever want the word of God to be taken out of the mouth of the minister. I would say pray as well for your ministers to have the word always in our mouths. And what this is also showing you, as this is a prayer for you, Christian, coming back to every Christian, is we need divine grace to keep the word of God close to us. Right? He, he almost sense there's like a kind of panic here, isn't there? Do not take the word out of my mouth, right? Uh, again, I've, I've mentioned this as I think on growing older, right? And one of the fears you often have is, will I lose the word of God as, you know, my faculties degrade and such? And so this is something, especially as we get older, especially needing to be pleading, don't take the word from me. Take my health, take my sight, take, my, uh, take every other faculty from me, my walking and everything else. But don't take the word from me. Don't take the word from me because that is how I lose Christ. In fact, this verse, and I, I think it goes even further, and the, there's more here. There's another promise in Isaiah 59, 21, which is mirrors here. Uh, and my words, which I put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth. See, there's a promise that is being prayed for. But listen to its expanse. Nor out of the mouth of thy seed nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord. There's a promise for generations to come. The Lord will not take his word out of our descendants. 
Now, parents, you are to pray that. You are not just to know that. You are to pray that. That's what the psalmist does. Faith, you know you have faith in the word of God and its promises. If you will pray, I have said it already. The Lord has said, I will not take my word out of thy seed or thy seed's seed. So what is your obligation? Pray. Pray fervently, just as desperately as the psalmist seems to be. O God, take not thy word out of my children's mouths. Let me live to see my children's children, and let me see that the word has not been taken out of their mouth as well. This is something we ought to be desperate for. Now, in general, it's a terrible thing, as I was just thinking about what the psalmist values here, that scripture is so poorly known by the church today. Christians once were valued, uh, were known for valuing the word of God, not so much anymore. I, I just couldn't help but think this. How furious would Tyndale and Luther be to see how the word of God is treated in Christian churches today? How furious would the martyrs who died, like Tyndale, be to see how poorly treated the word of God is in our midst. Why this uh, two Lord's Days ago, that was the so-called Super Bowl, right? I preached a sermon on Sabbath keeping. And you know how much, um, you know, that sermon by God's grace had gone far and wide. You know how much mockery people told me that people had saying this is legalism. That's not legalism, that's freedom, first of all. But secondly, how poorly received the word of God is, that on that very same day where that was preached here, there were churches where the word of God was kicked like a football on stage. How far we have come from, let not thy word be taken from my mouth, where so-called pastors are kicking it across a stage for amusement Hard to say, you know, if that church had emblazoned on it, Church of Satan, you would say, fair enough, I understand it's blasphemous, but I understand. But for it to be a Christian church, supposedly, and do that, shows you where we are. What could possess a man or woman but the devil to kick the word of life? Satan must bellow in laughter when the promises of God are kicked away from his people. He hates the word of God. Satan does. He trembles before its power used aright. He hates still the sting of defeat about 2,000 years ago when the Son of God defeated him with the words of God in the wilderness. He still feels its sting. And you can imagine the Lord preparing in his fasting to meet the devil. And what might he have prayed to God? Let not thy words depart from my mouth. The very words of the psalm. Well, you make sure to be in the word, memorize the word, and meditate on the word, and pray that it wouldn't be taken from thee. So let us consider next, and I said these next two heads would be quicker, liberated from sin. Verses 44 through 45. Verses 44, verse 44 says, So shall I keep thy law continually forever and ever. The, if the Lord gives grace to keep the word in our heart and in our mouth, 
the psalmist says, give me grace and then I will keep the law of God. But he asks for grace to do it. He asks for grace to do it. You know, he wishes to follow the law as a rule of righteousness and holiness, which is something every Christian saved must desire to do. Let us remember that the Christian has been freed from their chains to sin and enabled now by God, this is the liberty the Spirit gives us, to keep the law and even to desire it. That is the work of regeneration in you, believer. You are liberated from sin's power so that you may serve the Lord our God. Now, there are promises. I don't think that we often look at scriptures like this as promises, but there are promises to this effect. Romans 6.14 says, Sin shall not have, what's the word? Dominion over you. That's a promise from God. Do you have faith to believe it? You who struggle with sin's power and might... Can you believe that you are not under the dominion of sin anymore? You're not. Will you pray then that promise to God? Have you prayed it? Lord, let thy mercies come unto me according to thy word. Here is the word. Give me what the word, this is a mercy to me, O Lord. This is thy loving kindness that Christ has been seated on my heart and mind and the dominion of sin has been toppled. So give me what the word has promised. If you struggle with sin today, you are liberated from it if you are a believer. You have to believe it and you have to pray it. Let thy mercies come. Do you pray this when the struggle over sin is hard for you? God loves to hear his promises. Oh, how he blesses that. Has this promise, when was the last time this promise was in your mouth? Let me ask it that way. And when was the last time that promise was in your heart? It needs to be. Pray to the Lord. Stuff my mouth, my prayers with this promise, that I may believe it and live by it. Sin shall not have dominion over me, thou hast promised. Take up another promise, Romans 6.22. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Make me a servant of God as thou hast promised and give me the fruit unto holiness unto everlasting life. Hasn't God promised you that? Do you believe it? Do you pray it? You know, there are many Christians, I already intimated this when I spoke on the Sabbath, who have no love of duty, and they call duty legalism. But should we hate duty if we love his promises? You say you love, you know, there's predictably, I have had Christians who have worshipped under my ministry say, I love it. Pastor, when you preach those encouraging words of promises from God's Bible, but it is hard for me to sit there and listen when you keep preaching on duty. And I have to say, if you love promise, how can you not love duty? How can you take a partial God who says, I promise you this, but when he says, you are also obligated by the grace of God to live in this way, how can you hate those words from your God? 
If you love grace, you must love duty as well. Both promise and duty come from the same God. And so you find here the psalmist who loved promise loves duty as well because he loves God. He even says, forever and ever I shall keep thy law. That's a resolution. Are you afraid to make resolutions like this? Forever and ever. I think the reason you're afraid, and I am too, is because we know that we will fail as sinners. However, this man makes a resolution because he also knows the mercies of God. That God does bless heartfelt resolutions to live for him and that his mercies will cover when we stumble and we fall in our resolutions that we make. This is a man that knows the mercies of God. And so it is proper to make resolutions to live for God in good faith, still knowing that at times we will stumble. Jonathan Edwards went to the end of his life knowing that he often failed in his resolutions. But he also knew that he was resolved to live for a God of mercy. Knowing the mercies of God allows you to make sincere resolutions. I could say more on that, but time is slipping. Why? And verse 45 says, I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. Now, this was our thematic verse. I've already treated it in our introduction. But let me say this much. To seek God's precepts is to seek out his mind as well as his heart. And that is what it is to seek out his will. His will is expressed in his precepts in the word of God. And the one who knows the will of his creator walks in liberty. Walks in freedom. Remember I showed you uh, earlier how that word for freedom is almost like being put in a broad place. And when you do what you were created to do, which is to serve the Lord, you are at liberty. You know, one is most free when one does what he was designed to do. You know, a horse is most free when it is allowed to gallop in open lands. You feel bad for certain animals when they're caged up and are not allowed to do what they were created to do. When an eagle soars, right, it does what God has made it to do, and it is free. And when a Christian keeps the, uh, the law of the Lord by faith in Jesus, he or she soars and is free. That's what Christ has done for you. He's freed you. Uh, in the gospel, given you his own spirit so that you can walk with him, that you can soar with him in a, a manner of speaking, and you can be at liberty to seek his precepts. Some experimental analysis for you. Here's an example of freedom and bondage. Brethren, is your conscience not burdened when you sin against God? Do you feel particularly free when your conscience is bound because you have sinned. No, you feel terrible, don't you? When you're spiritual anyway. You feel conscience's pain. And I have to ask, is that freedom? That's bondage. That's bondage. That's misery. But how freeing it is to go to bed at night saying, however imperfectly, I sought to know and follow God's precepts this day and his mercies have covered my failings. And I bless him for it. But I can say of a truth, I sought to follow the Lord my God. That is freedom. You know, when you seek his mercies in the midst of seeking his will and his precepts, you find great freedom. You're freed from your stumbling and your imperfect obedience, knowing there is mercy. And seeking the grace of God, you seek to keep his precepts at the same time. Not out of bare legal obligation, but out of love for God and his commands. See the heart of the psalmist in verses 47 and 48. And I will delight 
myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments, which I have loved. There is repetition for you. I have loved, and I will meditate in thy statutes. Friends, if we look at the commandments as an expression of the heart and mind of Christ, we would love them because they are his commandments. If you hate his commandments, you hate him. I'm sorry to say that to you today. If you hate his commandments, you despise them, you hate him because he has said, and our children know it, if you what love me, keep my commandments. He says, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my father and I will love him and will, you'll say you love him, then listen to this, and will manifest myself to him. Have you ever longed for the commandments by saying, if I keep them in faith, in the grace of God, then Jesus Christ will be near to me. He will manifest himself to me. He will walk with me as he walked with Adam in the garden. Because I am walking with the Lord my God. This is liberty. And you will find that love of complacency. He will shower on you from God. He will show you his love of delight on you. And what is that worth to you? If it was worth anything to you, it would say, Oh, how I love thy law because it is a means towards communion with my God. Think of the law that way, my friends. That's worth everything. It's liberating to walk with. God in his commandments. Well, let me uh, go to our last heading with time gone, liberated from fear. Verse 46 says, I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. You know, kings especially, you think in that day, are those who think they have life and death in their hands, don't they? Right? You get summoned to the king and he has a controversy with you. Well, you know that your life is hanging in the balance, perhaps. It's an intimidating thing to testify for Christ in front of a king, right? Um, It would be, anyway, if we forgot that Christ is the king of kings. Uh, You know, the prophets of old, you're always taken by them. They never forgot who the king of kings is. They spoke boldly to even kings. You know, when King Ahab had the audacity to tell um, Elijah that he was the troubler of Israel, right? Was Elijah ashamed? Did he shrink back, right? No, he didn't. What did he say in response? I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord. Boys and girls, 1 Kings 18.17. Isn't that a remarkable thing to be summoned to a king and the king who thinks he has life and death in his hand says, you have troubled my kingdom. And the prophet, the man of God says, no, you are the troubler of Israel, you silly vassal. You have not kept the commandments of the Lord. This is what the psalmist understands, that when you speak of Christ's testimonies before kings, you will not be ashamed. When they summon you as they might someday, not uh, many here, I have to believe, unless the Lord reverses things, may very well be summoned to the tribunal for standing for Christ. And when they say, you are the troubler of these United States, you can stand before kings and say, no, I am not ashamed of Christ. 
You ought to be very ashamed for serving sin. You are the one who ought to be shamed for troubling this place. Same way, Paul spoke before kings. The martyrs spoke before emperors. The reformers and the covenanters preached to and against kings and queens. Not ashamed to be counted the offscouring of the world. But Christian, if, if the Bible promises you can stand before kings and not be ashamed for the testimony of Christ, how about lesser folks? Friends and families and employers? Don't be ashamed of the Lord's words. I'll get to that, but he will be ashamed of you. What if you are in front of a mocker or scorner of religion? You know how many are afraid to go and evangelize because they're afraid of what will be said to them? You go door to door and you don't be afraid of what is behind that door. When you hand out tracts and you speak of the Lord or you witness to friends or you witness to family members who are very anti-Christ, well, what can you say? I will not be ashamed for the testimony of the Lord Jesus. The righteous are freed from the fear of men. God promises that. You, the righteous, can be as bold as a lion, the scripture says. That is your liberty. You can be as bold as a lion. That is your liberty. Oh, but the devil has robbed it from you, hasn't he? He's made you afraid of mere men. That ought never be. I will say as well, children, as you think on courage, the man who is courageous without a firm grip of the word of God is a fool. He's really just full of himself. You are courageous because you have a firm grip on the word. You, children, can be as bold as a lion, though you are as small as a mouse. Right? It doesn't matter the size of the man who's here. Uh, what matters is the size of the God that has given this word. And he is immense and holy and powerful. Your courage is built on the word of God and the promises there. So I'll just ask, have you been afraid to speak others to others about Jesus? Why? What are you afraid of? Have you been afraid then to take a stand for righteousness? Are you afraid of loss? Why? That's an irrational fear. Have you ever thought of it that way? Utterly irrational to be afraid of taking a stand for righteousness. Because who is the righteous one who has said, them that honor me, I will honor? It is irrational. In fact, I'm going to say, the only rational thing is to be courageous for the Lord. Let me also say that the grace of God removes cowardice. Let us not be ashamed to testify of Christ. And I will say, in this time of declension, kings do need us speaking to. Kings need the gospel proclaimed to them. Unlike the thesis of our friends out west with radical two kingdoms, kings are to submit to the will of Christ. They are to kiss the sun lest they perish in the way. The time, again, is coming where even an ordinary Christian may be hauled before the magistrate. But there is a promise of mercy here and of loving kindness that you must cherish. You can be bold even if kings bring you to the bench. What does Matthew 10 say? And ye shall be brought before governors and kings. There's a promise you don't like. For my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how and what you shall speak. 
For it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is courage, and he will speak through you. Christian, you are the most free person in the universe. You ought to see yourself that way. The word of God liberates the soul and makes you courageous. On the other hand, and this is the flip side, let us be aware and beware what Jesus said in Mark 8. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of what? My words. In this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There is where shame is found. Children know it today. Never be ashamed of the word of God because that is to be ashamed of the one who spoke the word of God, Jesus Christ. Never. The devil and the world want to shame us for believing that this is the word of truth and the word of God. Never be ashamed of it. How many so-called Christians are ashamed of the word of God? They won't want to speak it. They don't want to talk about it. They would say it would make me seem like a, here's, this is one of my first memories as a Christian. Somebody saying to me, you don't want to be a Bible thumper. They've tried to shame you into being a Bible thumper. That is ridiculous. Let no man be shamed because he says too much about the word of God. This is the sign of subtle mockery and reproach that the world has towards the Christian. You then are tempted to be ashamed and sad to say so often we are ashamed that we say, thus saith the Lord. But think about the Christian, right? Ashamed of the words of God when it preaches against the sins of our day, which are made acceptable, sodomy, transgenderism, fornication, abortion, and so on. You are going to be, and you've probably already been tempted to be ashamed of what the word says on these things. Oh, take heed to the word of God, what Christ says. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words shall the Son of God be ashamed of. How many Christians will find it has been to their folly and shame on the last day when Jesus said, says to them, Depart from me, for I never knew you. I am so ashamed of you that you ever identified with me because you were ashamed of my words. Let that remind you that no matter what society says, we are never to be ashamed of, thus saith the Lord. No matter how unpopular of a stand it is, we are as bold as a lion with the word of God, but it would be utterly rational to be quivering in the closet someplace if you find your shame in what the word of God says. It is not rational to be ashamed of what the word says. But the psalmist loves the word of Christ because he loves Christ. How can you be ashamed of Christ's word when you love Jesus? Well, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And I pray in the psalm you would know the freedom Christ has given you. He has put by the gospel your souls in a broad place. And let us never exchange his freedom for the fetters of sin and Satan. And may you who have yet to believe See that your sin is truly bondage and that in Jesus alone is true freedom. May you turn to him in repentance and faith even now and you can say, 
Let thy mercies, let thy loving kindnesses come to me, Lord, and you will go home justified. Brethren, through these meditations on Christ's Psalms, I trust you see the depths of his praise, how deep the praise is in the word of God. May we never despise the praises of the psalm book. May God bless our meditation and may we bless the Lord for his liberty. Amen. Let's arise for prayer if able. O Lord, let thy mercies come also unto me, O Lord. Let thy mercies come unto us, O Lord, according to thy word, according to thy promise. Bless these people to have faith in what promises are found in the word of God. And bless these people with the grace to follow the word wherever it leads, knowing that to follow the commandments will increase our communion with the Lord and we will share more of the love of complacency or delight that the Lord showers on those who love him and keep his commandments. O Lord, may our praise increase. May our praise be filled with the depths of the majesty of the word of God. May none of the children here ever be ashamed of the word. May they be bold, testifying, even if they were children being brought before the tribunal, that they would simply say, I believe in the Lord and I believe in the word of God. No matter what you say, I will follow the Lord. How many of the martyrs have been children? And we pray that these children would love the Lord and cleave unto him as their life. Oh, bless us all and give faith to those who have never asked for salvation before. May they ask this day for salvation uh, for themselves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.